Good evening, everyone. You're all so well-behaved. Um, I thought this was about uncivil discourse. Uh, good evening. My name is Fred Lee. I am the uh, Director of Alumni Engagement at Alumni UBC, as well a proud UBC alumnus. It is absolutely my pleasure to welcome everyone to tonight's UBC Dialogues event, now in its 11th season. Hard to believe. Uh, I would like to start off by acknowledging that we are gathered tonight on the traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Uh, on behalf of Alumni UBC, I'd like to also extend, of course, a very warm welcome to everyone in attendance tonight. Thank you so much for carving some time from your very busy schedules and taking yourselves away from the wonderful whether we've been enjoying to participate in tonight's very important discussions. So now to begin, it is absolutely my pleasure to introduce uh, Scotiabank's Stephanie Argueta, the branch manager of the Falls Creek branch, who is our presenting sponsor, who will have the privilege of introducing tonight's moderator. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stephanie Argueta. Thank you, Fred, and good evening, everyone. I'm thrilled to be here tonight and to welcome you all to the UBC Dialogues. At Scotiabank, investing in our communities has been a focus for uh, over 185 years. Our goal has always been to help create a better life for people in the communities we serve, and like UBC Dialogues, we believe that different ideas and perspectives contribute to a strong and healthy society, one that fosters an inclusive culture and celebrates diversity. And we're so proud to be partnering with our friends at Alumni UBC on this fantastic series of events. Tonight, we're in for a real treat, and we'll hear from another outstanding lineup of panelists. And now it's my pleasure to welcome our moderator for the evening, Stephen Quinn. Stephen Quinn is the host of CBC Radio One's uh, popular morning show, The Early Edition. A uh, post he says is his dream job. Every weekday, listeners wake up and tune in to their daily dose of breaking news, traffic, local stories, and entertainment. Previously, Quinn was a longtime host of afternoon radio show on the coast and one of CBC's civic affairs reporters for eight years. A multiple RTNDAA, <laughs> that was hard, <laughs> the Radio Television Digital News Association winner award. Quinn has covered a multitude of stories that affects British Columbians, in addition to interviewing prolific individuals. In 2017, he was also awarded a Jack Webster Award for Best Radio um, News for his coverage of the NDP Green Deal for a Minority Government. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Quinn to the stage. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephanie. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for being here. It's a great uh, privilege for me to be able to do uh, this one more time. Um, I've moderated a few of these dialogues. I'm always uh, thrilled with the results. And uh, one of my favorite parts of it is when we have the, the pre-event phone call with all of the people who are going to be on the panel. It was a particularly lively one this time around. And I've suggested earlier that we just, just recreate the phone call on the stage, and it'll be all great. So. Um, moderating a panel tonight, of course, uh, on uncivil discourse, what is everyone so angry about? Uh, the world does seem to be more divided than it ever has been, and social media has certainly made it easy for all of us to follow uh, like-minded individuals, people that we agree with. Um, we do, though, 
tend to create a little bit of an echo chamber where we filter out opinions that we're not fond of. And we have seen points of view, and of course, all of this is up for argument. Um, we have seen points of view grow more polarized. We see conversations uh, between opposing sides, especially online, uh, being less civil, uh, more heated. And the environment has enabled populist movements to rise and hashtag activism to thrive. Um, so are these divisions new? Do they come with social media? Have they always been here? Um, or have they just become more visible? Um, and how can we overcome the most cynical manifestations of anger, uh, name-calling, and tribalistic thinking? Is it still possible, in fact, to express differences of opinion uh, in a respectful way, in a constructive way? Um, we have four just terrific experts uh, who now I'd like to welcome to the stage. Um, and as they get comfortable up here on the stage, you can come up now, I will uh, give them each a brief introduction. Our panel this evening. I haven't introduced them, so you have no idea who you're applauding for at the moment. Uh, closest to me here on my right, Bridget Anderson has 30 years of demonstrated expertise in strategic communications. Uh, Bridget is the general manager at Edelman, where she provides counsel on corporate reputation management, crisis communications, media, re media relations, and media training as well. She is an award-winning journalist. An aside, when I was a, a cub reporter covering the BC legislature, Bridget was a, a legislative reporter, and she was the only person who was nice to me. Uh, she's a frequent media commentator. She's been a local and national news anchor and reporter with CTV and BNN. Uh, she's appeared on radio and television where she provides insight into current affairs and, and communications issues. Please welcome Bridget Anderson. Next to Bridget, Cicely Blaine is a UBC alumni, a writer, a consultant, an activist, and an artist from London in the UK, not London, Ontario. Uh, Cicely's expertise stems from their work as a founder of Black Lives Matter in Vancouver, uh, a political organization which has been instrumental in changing conversations about racial justice in BC and part of a larger movement that really is shaping the future of black liberation. And with years of experience working with LGBTQ communities and marginalized people, uh, Cicely supports people and organizations to create meaningful change within their communities for greater inclusivity, uh, accessibility, and justice. Please welcome Cicely. Catherine Corrigal-Brown, an associate professor at UBC's Department of Sociology, her research bridges the subfields of social movements, political sociology, and social, social psychology, uh, focusing on explaining why people engage in social movement activism. Now, this research is the basis of her book titled Patterns of Protest, and this year she was awarded the Killam Teaching Prize at UBC. Catherine Corrigal-Brown. And finally, Alfred Hermida, an award-winning media scholar, author, and digital news pioneer. He's the associate professor and director of the School of Journalism at UBC. I have the great fortune of working with many of his graduates. Um, he has two decades of experience in digital journalism uh, with research that explores the digital transformation of media with a particular focus on emerging news practices, uh, media innovation, social media, 
and uh, data journalism as well, which is a very exciting field. He was a BBC television and radio and online journalist for 16 years and was a founding news editor of the BBC News website way back in 1997. Alfred Hermida. <laughs> And do forgive me, I have a little bit of a scratchy throat this evening. It's an occupational hazard. It comes with the 3.30 a.m. wake up. Um, just a few comments before we continue about the format of the Dialogues event. Uh, we are going to be asking our panelists a number of questions over the next 30 minutes. Uh, before turning the floor over to you in an audience question and answer period, uh, you've already learned all about Slido. You've already bookmarked slido.com, and you're all ready to queue up your questions. Uh, so please do submit those questions. Um, on that audience engagement platform. And um, as uh, Fred mentioned, uh, the questions that you like, that you give the thumbs up to, will rise to the top of the queue and will be uh, more likely to be uh, asked on stage. So now, let's get started. I'm going to move over here. Ah. Now that's comfy chair me. Um, I want to begin by asking each of you a little bit just generally about the topic this evening. Um, and I'll begin with you, Bridget, if we can. What is the state of discourse out there, do you think? You know, a lot of what I base <coughs> my opinions on around this in the last, I would say, the last seven years that I've been at Edelman is on the Edelman Trust Barometer. So that is a global survey of trust that has been happening for 18 years. And so it surveys trust in four institutions, in government, media, NGOs, and in business. And so there's a lot of data that has been curated over the last 18 years. And in the last even three or four years of the Edelman Trust Barometer, I see some real concerning moves. And so we'll, I know we'll dig into that. But one of the biggest ones I see is the polarization of trust, where you see in the last year of the survey, you see a 14 or 15 point gap between those that we say are the informed public, so those are people who have a higher socioeconomic background, more educated, consume more news, probably all of us in this room, and those who are the mass population. So we're seeing trust drop, and we'll talk about that because there are quite a few differences between Canada and other countries globally, but the gap where we're seeing that division, to me, is a real concern, and, and for a number of reasons. Okay, and we'll get into some of those reasons. Thank mm -hmm. you, Bridget. Uh, Cicely, from your point of view, um, what, what is your opinion of uh, uncivil discourse, or the state of discourse mm -hmm. right now? I think I really have to start by kind of unpacking what we mean by uncivil. I think very interesting term to use um, from my perspective, you know, it, the word like civilization and what does that mean? And I think it very much comes from kind of a colonial era and thinking about us being here on Turtle Island, which... Um, was colonized by Europeans, and so really thinking about how can we reframe our understanding of what having discourse means. And I think for myself as an, as an activist, um, we often kind of get shamed or called out for our anger, and I think a lot of that anger is very valid when you look at kind of the state of the world and what really fuels us to have those conversations. So, um, yeah, I think the state of discourse at the moment is... Uh, yeah, really all over the place, but I definitely think there is a lot of validity in, in the anger that comes from a lot of folks, and I think we're in a place where um, it's really important to call people into learning rather than distancing people from the conversation. Thank you. And Catherine, um, what is everybody so angry about? 
Well, I think what's interesting is that we're focusing on this idea of, of the anger and this idea of people being in echo chambers that are angry. But what if we reframed the idea of the echo chamber as really sort of more supportive communities where people are coming together? Because there's a lot of that, actually, that's happening online. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Idle No More. Those are actually communities online of like-minded people echo chambers, but that are very supportive and are doing really important things for people's identity and for mobilizing us forward for social change. So I think there's a lot of different kinds of discourse happening online. Some of it's angry, but some of it, even the angry discourse, is potentially moving us forward towards social change, so it could be very positive. All right, thank you. And Alfred? I want to pick up on the theme of trust, because a distrust in an institution can actually be seen, reframed as an indicator of the failure of those institutions to earn the trust of the people that they're serving. So let's take journalism, since I'm a journalist, journalism director. Journalism is a wonderful, wonderful profession, and it's full of flaws. During Idle No More, if you were an Idle No More activist, you would have felt disappointed and let down by the media, because the mainstream media were not taking the movement seriously. So why would you trust an institution that is dismissing your protests, that's dismissing the environmental concerns you have, you wouldn't have that trust. So I, say, I would say with the issue of trust in civil or uncivil discourse is moving away from trust just given because you are an institution, be it a political party, be it the media, be it some other institution, to a situation where that trust needs to be earned by showing that your concerns are addressing the concerns of the public in a way that resonates with them and reflects their interests and what really concerns them and affects their daily lives. Um, we talked about echo chambers, and Catherine, you brought this up in, in social media where it's not necessarily, a, I mean, it can at its very best be exactly what you said, you know, a community of interest. It can be, a, you know, a, a force. Um, uh, but, but what uh, about when... Um, beliefs and uh, opinions are th that aren't based on sound facts are amplified or reinforced are become uh, pushed forward you know by a, a, a group that isn't necessarily there to accomplish something constructive well I think that this it's a good point that obviously part of the issue is that things are being presented as facts that are not facts, right? But I think that we have to unpack what we mean by social media, because social media is actually quite diverse. If you're talking about Twitter that, or Facebook, you could be getting your news from those sources, and that news could be real news or, in fact, just made up by, you know... Thank you for not saying it. <laughs> <laughs> made up. Um, but the point is, is that there are lots of, you know, one, we make the choice to get our news from Facebook... And we can make the choice not to get our news from Facebook, to get it from other places that we know uh, is, is based more on fact. But also, uh, you know, not all media is the same. Twitter is a place where, you know, it, it can get quite uncivil. But Facebook, potentially, you can be selecting your friends and you can be selecting a community of people that is uh, supportive, that, that is providing you with news that you trust uh, and not sort of having uh, access to this more toxic news environment. I'm going to jump in there because while I think it's true that you can curate your kind of community like that, but statistics show, and I'm relying again on the Edelman Trust Barometer, that people, half the people that surveyed globally are choosing 
to follow opinions that just reinforce what they already think. And even more than half people, two-thirds of people are saying that even if they're presented with other information, they will not change their minds. So what does that say about societies? We're looking to validate what we already think. We don't want to hear anybody else's opinion. When we do, we get angry at best. And Alfred, is there not evidence to show that people actually, when presented with facts, actually dig in further into their own trash? Well, Bridget makes a good point, but it's not because of social media that we behave this way. We behave this way because we are humans. You decide in the morning whether you listen to Stephen or you listen to another radio station. That is making a choice. And part of that will be, the, is, you know, do you like Stephen? Is, are the topics they cover and all our graduates who work on the show, is that something of interest to you? We have always selected our media. And we have always gravitated to media that reflects our interests. And when it comes to presented with conflicting information, you know, we fall back on cognitive dissonance. We try to rationalize why something doesn't work by saying there must be wrong with that thing. It can't be us that we might be wrong. We find an excuse to explain why, of course, we're always right, and it's just that, yes, that, that bike, there's something wrong with it, or, yeah, the car just, it just breaks down every so often. Mm. It's not our fault that we haven't taken it for a service in the last year, or something like that. So we've always gravitated towards the media that reflects our values, and we always tend to try to rationalize conflicting opinions. That is something that's called human nature. That actually hasn't changed. Um, I'm interested, uh, Cicely, in, in your experience, because when we talk about those communities of interest online, with Black Lives Matter, how important was that, that hashtag? How important was the community that was built online? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely crucial. Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag, as uh, three uh, black women kind of having this conversation online, mm -hmm. their, their anger and frustration at the state of the system um, and how they felt that black folks were being disproportionately mistreated, particularly in that case around police brutality, but now Black Lives Matter has grown to be so much more than that, such a broad and intersectional movement. And it, but it really did begin with just those three words um, as a social media movement, and I think that really um, fostered an opportunity for anybody from any walk of life to become involved. And of course that does then bring in people who, as you say, maybe are just coming to the conversation to you know, to start something, to, to fight, to argue. Well, well, right, which is my question, which is how welcoming are those hashtags? Um, and you, you mentioned a few of them, Catherine, uh, where you have that community of like-minded people who are, you know, feeling very strong together and sharing information. Um, how welcoming is, are, is that conversation to dissent to a different opinion? Well, I think that it depends what the dissent is. I think that if you look within... You know, I do research on the events that happened after the Women's March in the United States. And in some of these communities, you have groups coming together that have differing ideas, right? They think, you know, the way that we're going to deal with access to reproductive rights is like this or like that. You know, so I think that there is dissent that happens within these communities. But I also think that, frankly, there's nothing wrong with creating a safe space for groups that have been dis disenfranchised and potentially are very geographically separate from one another. Hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know more wouldn't have been possible without online activism because uh, indigenous activists were very far away physically from each other. So I think... It might be all right to have an area online where people can create these communities. And sometimes now on Facebook, these communities are becoming closed to create that supportive inside environments where people can't just come and heckle. And I think also to add to that, 
we sort of have this perception that people are fighting sort of on an equal playing field, but that's certainly not what's happening. The reason why, for example, I might tweet hashtag Black Lives Matter is because I feel my life is at danger. Um, you know, if I'm walking along the street, I see a police officer, I don't know how they're going to interact with me. Am I at risk? Can I lose my life? That's genuine things that I've seen take place. So I'm tweeting Black Lives Matter to kind of affirm my existence, to remind people the reason, yeah, to remind people that black people should be treated um, as equal as everyone else. Someone who comes in and in, in defense or in contrast says all lives matter, like that doesn't impact their life. They're not there to ass assert their own sovereignty or you know, assert that their life matters. They're, they're there to pick a fight. And so there's like, an, yeah, an unequal, it's not about you know, disagreeing on like, do you like the color yellow? It's mm -hmm. like some people who are, as you say, disenfranchised, marginalized, speaking up for their actual lived experience and their existence and having people affirm and believe that is very different from just having, yeah, a simple discussion about whether you agree or disagree on something. Well, that's the point. I don't think that we are having simple discussions anymore because of social media in many ways. I think a lot of these kinds of topics and disagreements over whether you felt that it was right to be a Protestant or a Catholic, I mean, it could be anything, but there were more civil conversations about it because on social media, what happens, and especially on platforms like Twitter, people are terrible to one another in a way that we would never say things to each other face to face. Even when you've seen the most heated public hearings at City Hall over some development or something where people are really, really passionate about it because it really does affect their lives, you still won't see people be as, as, as I can't even, I mean, as, as terrible, <laughs> I'm just going to use that word, as they are on social media because the anonymity of social media, people feel that they can say and do anything without any kind of consequence. That to me is, is one of the most alarming parts about whether we, about social media and how do we have discourse about democracy or women's rights or, or rights of LGBTQ, like how do we have those difficult conversations when we can't be civil to one another? Alfred, I know you want to jump in, but I have a specific question is, has that kind of discourse not bled into real life? Well, I would argue that to say that this is a new thing because of social media is maybe attributing too much power to social media. As you might tell from my accent, I'm not originally from here. In Britain, we have a very active and very uh, vociferous tabloid press that would publish front page headlines that were Uncivil discourse is the polite way to put it. <laughs> so to say that people are saying bad things because of social media, I, I grew up in a media system where you had a tabloid press that would viciously go after politicians on the most personal details. That, to me, is incredibly uncivil discourse. So it's not a new thing. This has happened. And yes, it does exist on social. But I think we do, there's a risk of privileging those bad actors. When we think of the hundreds of millions of tweets likes, posts, photos. How many of those are actually you know, trolls? How many of those are these uncivil actors looking to stir the pot? There's a danger in paying too much attention. And the media needs to bear some responsibility because journalists will pay attention to those bad actors who are saying bad things and attacking um, other movements because it makes news reporting that there was a very polite conversation discussing Black Lives Matter. <laughs> it's not exactly headline news, but actually we, we're in danger of overprivileging the negative aspect and ignoring all these communities to the points made earlier that are gaining a voice that are 
being able to make connections through social media as a connective tissue and find spaces where they can have these exchanges and find mutually supportive groups. We tend not to see that unless we're part of those groups, but we hear a lot about the bad actors. I just want to add as well that I think that we are glorifying the past if we think that we were always having civil discourse before. <laughs> you know, the civil rights movement, when they were being beaten down with batons, was certainly not civil in any way. Um, I've, I've been to protests against the Iraq War in the United States when I was studying them when we were spat at on the side of the street. Um, I was at a protest in Vancouver against white supremacists that I will say didn't feel civil at all, right? So I think this idea that we were living in this past dialogue of very civil discussions about these issues is not true, and we just weren't as exposed to it because we weren't necessarily at that protest event. Whereas online, we can see those comments and the trolls. And the anonymity is a bit of a different thing. If you had to actually go to the protest and be the white supremacist at the protest, that is different than just right. anonymously making comments online. But I think that this lack of civility was always there. Yeah, I always say an egg with three followers can say whatever they want, but um, Twitter. They're not eggs anymore, are they? <laughs> Bridget, talk, tell me more about the, the Edelman Trust Barometer, because we're throwing it around up here like everybody understands it. And, and I just wanted to make sure that people know what it is and, and the data that, that you've got from there, what's, what it's telling sure. you. So as I said, it has been in market for 18 years, and it surveys the levels of trust in 28 countries, 33,000 people, and splits between informed public and also mass population, and looking at trust, as I mentioned, in the four institutions like business, media, government, and NGOs. And what's probably no surprise to anybody, trust plummeted in the U.S. last year, uh, the lowest that we've ever seen, the biggest drop we've ever seen in trust at its lowest level ever. No surprise to anybody, I'm sure, given what's been happening in the United States. But we're seeing other kinds of anomalies in this study as well, and really big, big swings, um, which would be, uh, you know, in part, I, I think you can explain it by the disenfranchised. The have-nots are becoming more have-not. The haves are, are becoming wealthier, and so you're seeing this greater divide. And so we dig into that a little bit about why people are feeling so angry and distrustful and so disenchanted, just disenfranchised. And in part, uh, globalization is part of it. Um, immigration is another reason. Technology uh, is another one too, which has been spoken about. There's a lot of fear. Um, and and it, we've heard about it mostly, I think, in the Midwest, U.S., in the southern U.S., that technology is taking people's jobs, and so a lot of fear about that. So people get very angry, and then when there tries to be some sort of discourse about democracy in the United States, for example, things get very heated very quickly. Mm. But it's a fantastic study because it doesn't just look at trust from a, a narrow lens. It is very broad, and after 18 years in field... We've collected a lot of data, and it really gives an understanding into how, how people are feeling in China or in, in Russia or in Singapore or, you know, there's, there's a number of countries. And so it, it to me, is, is one of the best studies out there. And, and Cicely, do, do we give enough credence to the socioeconomic factors at play here that Bridget talks about, you know, the difference between the haves and, and, and have-nots not, have um, and, and the level of trust and, and the, the, the tenor of the discourse? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that doesn't really get addressed enough. I think we were discussing before coming up here around, yeah, as people are more and more disenfranchised. It, that anger is really fueled, and I think 
um, especially when it comes to social media, because that is a kind of like a unifying platform, regardless of your class or background. It, pretty much ev everyone these days has access to that, and so that's kind of a playing field where a lot of the yeah a lot of the anger and frustration really plays out. And I think um, we are I, I I believe we are seeing. We were talking before around like how optimistic we're feeling around about change, and I was saying you know a, a lot of things do seem good. There's a lot more LGBTQ. Um, inclusion in, in mainstream media and so on. But one of the things that sort of remains the same is, is, is class difference mm. um, and how, yeah, working class and poorer folks are continually disenfranchised from a lot of our systems. For the record, Cicely's really optimistic <laughs> and I'm not so much, so I'm going to do everything I can to change my attitude to yours by the end of okay, the night. Great. <laughs> well, let me, let me help you there, Bridget. Um, because... Uh, being optimistic, of course, it you know depends on 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 who you are and where you are. And if you are, uh, you know, a, a young LGBTQ person uh, living in rural Saskatchewan in a small town, um, and you're queer, your experience is going to be very different than somebody who's in Vancouver. And you may not, when when you read about attitudes towards LGBTQ people changing, you might be thinking, "I'm not feeling it." Alfred, I know you have something to say about this. Well, I think what we see here also is as we see the rise of these movements and, and groups that were previously disenfranchised gaining traction, gaining social, political power, the groups that were in charge, people like Stephen and myself, you know, middle-aged white guys, some of us are going to resist that and fight that. So I think that also then what we're seeing with uncivil discourse is as new forces rise and we move towards a more inclusive, diverse, equitable society, people who are in charge are not going to like that. They're going to feel their rights are under assault, and they will react. Um, so I think that also feeds into the themes we've talked about here around trust, about disenfranchisement, and then the type of discourse that takes place often through social media channels. I think there's two, two things um, to, to follow up on. One, your, your point about the young LGBT teen, you know, living out in rural mm -hmm. somewhere. Actually, one of the first sort of internet campaigns that I really liked uh, was the It Gets Better campaign, yes. which yeah. was um, an adult man who is gay put a, a video out about his experience and saying, you might be struggling now, and suicide among LGBT teens is very high, but it gets better. This is my experience. And everyone put videos out about all sorts of different lives that people had as LGBT adults and how it gets better and how, you know, you'd see videos of people saying, I grew up in this tiny town and I used to sneak up to my room and my parents, you know, said they'd kick me out if I came out as gay. But I watched these videos of someone else mm. who said that things could get better and that that was so inspiring. And I think that, you know, the, this is what we should be focusing on. This is the potential. We just need to harness that potential and get rid of some of the more hostile elements of it. But that potential, without social media, that teen is just sitting by themselves alone in their bedroom. So, you know, we have to harness the good of it. Mm -hmm. hmm. See, I'm feeling optimistic now. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. I know about you. Um, we, we all seem to agree that this is not new. This, there has always been uncivil discourse. Uh, Alfred, you cited you know, the British tabloids, um, and we all have our bubbles because either you, know, you like to read the Globe and Mail and listen to the CBC or NPR or something, um, you know, or you prefer global TV and CKNW in the Vancouver province. 
uh, and I'm not, no stereotypes here. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm suggesting that people choose the media that, you know, mo most agree. So if it's not new, what's changed? How is it different, Bridget? Well, and I would argue, I would disagree politely with the point I that you made. I didn't say CTV. No. <laughs> no. But the point that you made, yeah. Alfred, and that point that you just made, Stephen, about media. As a former journalist, it is the media's job to give a wide perspective. So that means that it, I remember we learned this in journalism school. You go and get you one opinion, you get another opinion, you get another opinion, and you show people a vast array of opinion. So but those opinions don't have equal I don't, weight. I know, and I just think that media doesn't do a good job of it. Didn't do a good job of it when I was a, a member of the media, and doesn't do a, does even a worse job of it now. I think that you can easily tell the political slant or leanings of whether we're talking about Fox News or we're talking about the Globe and Mail. And I forgot your question because I was on my little rant. <laughs> well, I was just saying, so, so, so what's changed? The former journalist, I can say that. Right? So, I can't. So what's changed? I, well, it goes back to what I was saying about social media. Mm. It's personal. The things that people say to one another are terrible, terribly personal. That you wouldn't, yes, you might have stood up, you, you know, somebody might have been really horrible to you at a protest, but would they say the things that they'd say to you or about you? And the way that people feel threatened, the violence that's threatened on social media, that to me is, is just unbelievable. And it wouldn't happen. That to me is the biggest change. So, so Bridget, I'm going to agree oh. with you for a change, just to show <laughs> that, just to be civil. Um, because I think part of it, we need to understand that. These forms of media have different logics. Um, there's a researcher at Regina called Gordon Pennycoat who's doing some research looking at how people react to the news when they see it on social compared to the news media. Mm -hmm. And a news media, they're thinking, this is, I'm looking at the news. Whereas on social platforms, they're thinking, I'm looking at social stuff. So there's a different mindset. And we need to understand that social media has different rules. It's not a place that evidence plays well. Evidence doesn't go viral. What goes viral are things that play to our emotion, that play to our experiences, um, that play to our empathy. Those are the things, those are the triggers on social media. So there is something about the rules of social media that encourages certain types of discourse to gain far more traction than they would do in other circumstances because people also behave differently. And evidence, facts, facts don't go viral, facts aren't sexy something that's emotional, something that relates to your experience, something that you feel empathy with will go viral and you will respond to it. That's the nature of the medium. There are a few heads that pop over the cubicles where I work to, to say, did you see that very reasonable thing that someone just tweeted? <laughs> um, but, Cicely, for you, um, how do you see things having changed with social media if we all agree that discourse has often been uncivil as we're defining that this evening? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I don't really have anything bad to say about social media. I'm hardcore millennial. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I love social media. As I said, it's, it's built the movement that I'm part of. And, yeah, things wouldn't be the same without it. Um, I, yeah, I do kind of agree um, with Bridget in a sense that I think... Like, I receive numerous horrible, heinous comments, death threats, all kinds of things. Um, you know, people are able to use social media to, you know, find me personally. You know, when I'm doing XYZ interview or whatever, they'll, they'll find me and give me their two cents of what they think about Black Lives Matter. I'm a terrorist. I'm a bad person, whatever. But I think at the end of the day, I don't feel 
that scared because I, as I, as you said, I don't believe that they would do or say that in real life. So it is kind of this like, over time, I've managed to just develop a thick skin and sort of be like that. That is one of the ills of social media and people having this anonymity and this kind of like bravado that it gives them to say whatever they like and potentially, you know, create a fake profile and be untraceable. Whereas I, when I go out in person to a protest, I have my team with me. We have all our allies, all of our friends, and I don't feel that same kind of fear, as you said, of like what the civil rights movement looked like with with dogs, with hoses, with you know police with guns and batons. Like also because we're in Vancouver and it is reasonably um, safer, but also just that kind of I definitely see that as a shift that like people are still angry and frustrated with those differences, but I don't believe that. Um, yeah, I don't believe that that would necessarily carry over into C real life. Cecily, do you report those threats to the police or to the platforms? Um, yes, occasionally, but it's sort of like hitting a bit of a brick wall in some ways. And I think, it, yeah, it just comes with the territory in a sense that like I know, and it's very much what you said, Audrey Lord said something very similar that like um, to those who have privilege, equality feels like oppression. And this kind of concept that as we move to greater equality and inclusion, those like yourself who have typically had more privilege are suddenly feeling attacked. And you know, for myself as a diversity and inclusion consultant, that's the biggest wall that I'm pushing is saying, you know, you need to hire more women, you need to hire more people of color. And they think they're being ousted, but they're not. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it, it's what comes to it. And I definitely in the beginning was very anxious, very frustrated as a young activist. Um, worrying about my safety, but over time sort of realized that's just the nature of, of the online world and some things you kind of just have to take with a pinch of salt. Catherine, how, how is it uh, different? We're going to get audience questions in just a moment. How is, is it different or what's changed if, it, if in fact it's not different is what I'm asking. The online... Yeah, well, the online social media versus, versus the, the bubbles we used to keep in the analog dead tree days of journalism and, <laughs> and public discourse. Well, I just think that it's increased the size of people's social world. So, you know, maybe you are following people with generally the same idea as you, but it, it gives you access. If, if you're in Black Lives Matter Vancouver, you're all of a sudden getting access to what they're doing in Toronto, to what they're doing in the U.S., to what they're doing in all these countries around the world. And if Black Lives Matter happened 30 years ago, you would be reading about what happened in Vancouver, and that would be it, right? So you, you wouldn't necessarily have that kind of mm. wider context. I do think, though, this issue of harassment online is also a very gendered issue. Oh. So the, the people who are getting harassed seem to be more women than men, and I think that there is some push with, you know, with Me Too, which is sort of doing a separate thing, but with this idea that harassment is to be taken seriously in all contexts. And I think you know, Facebook is under some fire these days for a variety of different things. But I think one of the things that I think they're trying to do is get rid of those little eggs, so the little faces that aren't really faces, mm -hmm. um, to make everyone's got to have a little face and everyone's got to have it associated with a phone number and some sort of accountability to who is, who is making these comments to Cicely? Because it's actually not acceptable and they should be banned from the platform, right? And I think that that's a change in discourse that came from Me Too, also a hashtag, right? So social media has, has put that discourse out there. I do want to get to some audience questions now, and I, and I like this first one very much. This is the question that's been voted to the top of the queue here. Um, and I'll go to Cicely on this one first. Uh, how could we draw the line between uh, freedom of speech and being civil in a discussion? Mm. 
That's a very difficult question. I think there's definitely a misconception that freedom of speech means that you can say whatever you want without any consequences, and that's not what it means. <laughs> like, if you, yeah, if you say something that goes against the BC Human Rights Code, then you will still be held accountable to that. And I think that's, yeah, as you say, people are just saying really terrible things, and it is bordering on harassment. And now that you've mentioned it, I will be reporting a lot more things. Um, and I think, yeah, of course we have to create space for dissent and space for differing opinions and different ideologies because that's how, in the end, we, yeah, we flourish. And as I mentioned in my work, supporting organizations with diversity, it's the richness of, of difference that, mm -hmm. that creates beauty and power. And I think, you know, we can't just say everybody has to shift to this side, everybody has to shift to this side. But yeah, freedom of speech, freedom of expression is about being able to come as you are and be your true self, but also be held accountable to, I don't know, the way you say that, the way you present that. And, you know, there's sort of this idea that like LGBT groups are like pushing an agenda mm -hmm. in someone's face. But no, that's not what's happening. They are, you know, asserting their own lived experience because they have been historically marginalized. But you began by talking about how it's okay to be angry online. And so does um, uh, being civil come at the expense of freedom of expression? Um, I don't think so. I think I've done pretty well. So anybody can, yeah, it's, I consider myself an educator and I use my uh, social media platforms to educate people in ways that I would consider civil. And, mm. you know, there's ways to explain things but still remain frustrated and angry because anger is what fuels systemic change, I believe. Anyone else? Like to, yeah, Catherine. I think we should also think about what we mean by anger. Who seems angry and who seems passionate? Anyone who watched the recent Supreme Court justice confirmation in the United States, you know, you had Brett Kavanaugh, who was described as sort of passionate, but clearly was quite angry as he said his words. And then we had, you know, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, who was very tempered, right? So I think often white men are allowed to say things with passion and loud voices, uh, but marginalized groups, women and LGBTQ and uh, Black Lives Matter activists are seen as angry and, and described in the news often as, you know, rioters or, or you know, in, with other words that, that are sort of meant to undermine. And I think that we want to think about who we're calling angry and who's not angry. Well, and I think too, I mean, I'm hardly marginalized, but for all of those groups who have been disenfranchised, who are disenfranchised and marginalized, how can they not be angry? Mm -hmm. You know, you, th you think about any one of these groups that for decades or hundreds of years have felt marginalized. So I think it's, it's, not, it's not possible to keep the anger out of it. But does it need to go to being a place where it's not civil anymore? No, I think it goes to accountability, it goes to rules. And I, I, I hate to harp on the media, sorry, Stephen. But That's I think okay. it's also I'm used the, to it. <laughs> it's the media, the, the traditional media, the mainstream media, the broad media needs to be able to, to be able to show dissenting views in, in a way that if I'm reading the Globe and Mail, I'm going to see viewpoints that don't agree with mine rather than the echo chamber. Like, and, and every single publication and outlet has got, you, you kind of know, well, Fox News is a bit right wing or CNN's a bit left wing or middle of the road or whatever. So mm -hmm. they all need to stretch their wings a little bit to be able to allow for more dissenting viewpoints. So all of us who access those kind of common points are seeing them. And, and we talk about that because we talk about false equivalency when we go out and 
you know, and you, you know this obviously as a journalist and Alfred, well, you're all shaking your heads yes because, you know, there is a tendency to gravitate toward, you know, whatever is unusual. You cover a demonstration, you'll go to the, you know, the, 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 the loudest, you know, the only incident of, of violence that happens, you know, in a group of 2,000 people, and that'll end up being the story. So. Well, this is one of the issues with the Idle No More movement and the media coverage of it. Because journalists, and speaking as a journalist, it's numerous studies show this, when there's protests and there's demonstrations, you, journalists will turn to figures of authority as the credible voices of what happened. And they'll present the voices from the protesters as the alternative voices. So they privilege authority and credibility. So then what happens with Idle, what happened with Idle No More, given that this was largely a movement on social media, operating through social media and connecting through social media, it was very hard for the media to cover because you couldn't go, what number do I call to get the spokesperson for I Don't Know More? Well, there wasn't one spokesperson. There were a number of voices that would rise to the fore through social media. And with my colleague Candice Collison at UBC and myself, we studied to see who were people listening to on social media. And what we found is much more indigenous voices, much more alternative voices than were being represented in the mainstream media. Mm. But it's one of the challenges journalists face in covering these movements because you want that spokesperson. You want, where's the headquarters? What are your aims? What do you want? What do you want politically? And these movements are early stage at this stage through social media. It really is these voices coming together and saying, we matter, we want change. Um, I want to get to another question and uh, jump in anyone who wants to tackle this one. Does increasing loneliness in Western culture make us more likely to connect with online communities as a primary form of expression? Uh, part two of the question, and, and what are the consequences? And I'll, I'll jump into that sure. a little bit. Um, I, and I think it's interesting because Canadians have the, are, I think are the most prolific on social media mm. than any country in the world. So are we all pretty lonely or? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a rural country. There's a lot of people who live mm -hmm. in small communities who are looking to connect with like-minded individuals or friends or family who are living across the country. So I, I think there's a lot of positive here. Here I'm going, Cicely. There's a lot of positive things about social media to connect people. Um, but I do think as well, I've got two teenage kids and I look at their faces on their screens all the time and I think, where are your people that you're hanging out with outside of the screen? Where, like, to me, I think there is a real danger that, and you walk along the sidewalk on Robson Street right now and you'll probably see, I don't know, 60% of people walking with their face down on a screen. So I think it does, while it connects you in a virtual way, I actually think it does make people feel more disconnected because they're not talking to people one-on-one, face-to-face, -on -face interacting. So no. I now, now it's my turn to disagree with Bridget. Okay, um, <laughs> there's actually very little evidence that shows that use of technology, social media disconnects, but rather the opposite, it connects. And partly here, I think we have a generational thing. If you, know, if you grew up with always being on, always being connected, we're having this device that you're constantly plugged into all these networks, not just locally, but across the world into different areas, you feel more connected than ever before. It's your life. You don't live with media. You live in media. For those of us who came to the internet later, we didn't grow up with this. This wasn't part of the fabric. We grew up with radio, television, those sorts of, and other forms of media. But I think there's a generational thing, and I think I'm always hesitant to speak about young people on their phones because 
They have different experiences, and the connections they're making, the groups they're connecting with, the interactions they have, why is that any less valuable than us getting together this evening to discuss things? I think it's too danger early to say. I, I think we haven't seen the, the evidence bear out yet. I think it'll be 10 more years from now when some of these kids... Why is it a negative? They're connecting to groups that they would never connect to because they can find from LGBTQ youth to people who are into particular types of video games. Um, they find these communities of like-minded But like I, I guess what I'm asking, and I don't have the answer by any means, but I, I have concerns and questions about how they're connecting, how people are connecting, and not just young people. When you see the levels of depression, when you see... Uh, people very feeling lonely and disconnected. So I think it's too early for us to say as a society that there's been a negative or a positive impact. I think if we were to sit here in 10 more years from now, we'd have a whole bunch more information that we could look at. And, of course, you have to consider the broader social context, low-paid jobs, gig economy, not being able to afford somewhere to live, sure. all mm. these other factors that particularly young people, you know, as a, a journalism educator at UBC, you, feel, you notice this among our students. They are in a very precarious situation. Um, so I think you're right, but social media or their phones are just one tiny fraction of the experience they're living. They could contribute to feelings of depression, mental health issues, loneliness, etc. The discourse when I grew up was very civil because there was a single telephone on the kitchen wall. <laughs> and everyone heard your conversation, <laughs> which is how the cord got stretched to be 30 feet long in the end. <laughs> um, but it is different. Suddenly I feel very old. And I have teenagers too, and I watch exactly the same thing happen. Mm -hmm. And I share some of Bridget's uh, worries about actual, physical, real-world social interaction. But I also take your point that that's not how the kids do it. Um, <laughs> here's another she one. Does the, the lack of, and this, this plays right into what we're talking about right now, <laughs> does that lack of face-to-face -face engagement lead to greater uncivil behavior? We've kind of c covered that already a little bit by it's saying kind of that. Yes and no. Depends. Would you say, but, but yeah, again, it brings back the idea that would you, would you say that to someone, you know, to their face if they weren't an egg with three followers? Yeah, look, I, I think that people do say harassing things online that they wouldn't say face to face. But I do, you know, back to a much earlier point that Alfred made, uh, there, this is, you know, I have never had, to, I'm very tangentially on social media. So I'm, you know, I, I don't engage that much. I, I read stuff about the movements that I follow, but so I've never been harassed online. But I do think even for someone who has been harassed, that's probably a tiny, tiny amount of all of the stuff out there. So I think, you know, when we think about the amount of uncivilness out there, it's still just a tiny amount, as you were saying before. So maybe it's more than it would have been, but it's because we're having so many more interactions than we would have had before. So the sample size is just big. Cicely, do, do, do you engage with people whose, um, you know, whose comments you, you don't agree with if, if they are you know, behaving in a, in a reasonably civil way? if someone has maybe legitimately is trying to understand something? Yeah, I think I definitely used to a lot more. Now I kind of just pass it on to my white friends and say, like, can you deal with this? Because I don't have the capacity right now. Um, but I think, yeah, I do when, yeah, when I feel like somebody's actually interested, somebody yeah. wants to have a conversation. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I'm definitely very young and like I'm so young my parents met online that's how young I am <laughs> and you can't be serious I'm very serious <laughs> so yeah I don't know I just I grew I'm up I'm doing math over here <laughs> I grew up with like the internet I grew up like 
yeah, with MSN and like Facebook, wow. social media, and I think, yeah, a lot of young folks kind of you almost like learn this language of like interneting, and you just, yeah, it just it's so natural. It's like a second part of you, and I think that's it makes it a lot easier to kind of sit down and be like, this person wants to learn with me in the same way as if, you know, you asked me my opinion on something. Yeah, and I think that there's also the difference between, like, conversations happening on public platforms. As you said, like, with the phone in the kitchen, like, if someone messages me privately, I'm more than happy to, like, go into an in-depth conversation because it means they're not just trying to make a show of it. They're right. actually reaching out to me and saying, you know, I'm interested, let's chat. Well, and I, I, this is a great point because, I mean, this is what I do now that I'm not a journalist is I talk to companies and organizations and give them all kinds of advice. And one of the things I give them advice on is on social media. And so uh, a, a customer, a consumer might have something to say about a product or a service that an organization uh, deals with and they're not happy. And so they post that on social media. And the first thing the company says is, Oh, God, what do I do with that? How, do, do I just ignore that? Do we delete it? Let's take it off. Let's take it off Facebook. No, this is actually a platform for a conversation and for an exchange, so you need to exchange with them. But the fear around that is really interesting because as soon as there's any negativity, and it might be civil, but they think, I can't engage with this. I, I can't. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's, they use it as a customer complaint platform. Um, but even to get good feedback, and there's some great brands out there that have done some really great work engaging with people in a very civil way that have actually moved their product, their services, their business, their values forward. Because what the research shows is when you engage with people, the reaction changes. Mm -hmm. Very often when they're shouting at a brand, at a media organization, it's like shouting at a void. Um, and I had personal experience with this when I was at the BBC website. Um, my boss at the time thought we could put reporters' emails on their stories. And we all thought, no, <laughs> I think be able to email us. But he knew that my team and I like to try new things, so we put it on there. And you know, the first few emails we would get would be, you're a terrible journalist, et cetera, et cetera. But I would try to reply to all of them. And then the second email I'd get from the person was like, oh, I didn't realize this was actually going to a real person. Yes. I thought it was just going to the BBC void somewhere <laughs> and disappearing into Doctor Who vortex somewhere. And the fact that they were being listened to changed the tone of the conversation. So I think, Bridget, you've got a really good point there. The smart companies know that the frustration their customers feel is often just they, they're not being listened to, that they're shouting into a void. And as soon as you turn around and say, no, we're listening to you, we, we're paying attention to what you have to say, help us be better, mm. that changes the tone of the conversation from uncivil to far more civil. Yeah, and I'm often very surprised that when you do respond, whether it's on Twitter or via email, how quickly you can begin to have a civil conversation with someone you assumed was terribly, terribly angry by the wording of the first exchange. Yeah. So. Um, this is a good one, and Bridget, I, I think this is intended for you, although it doesn't say so specifically. Uh, more informed equals higher so, uh, socioeconomic status equals more trustful is a big statement. Can you explain how you came to know that? Uh, it's what the data shows. So we look at levels of trust, and so we're asking, uh, for example, 33,000 people how much uh, they trust these institutions I've talked about. And so the informed public, those with a higher socioeconomic background who are higher educated and consume more news, that's how we, um, the criteria, tend to trust these institutions more where the mass population, which would be people who don't fall into that category, have less levels of trust. 
So what that says to me and says to people way smarter than me who dig into this data for Edelman is that people in the mass population feel like the institutions are failing them. The system is not helping them anymore get ahead. And that's a huge generalization. But that's what it's saying is that these systems don't, aren't doing anything for me. They're failing me. And, and that speaks to the, the people who are disenfranchised and for some of the reasons I talked about, whether it's technology or immigration mm -hmm. or globalization, so some of those key themes came up. I don't know if that answers the question. Anyone else care to jump in there? Well, I, 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 we're assuming that that's bad, but maybe that's good. The system hasn't worked well for them and they should be mobilizing around that. And yeah. I think that a lot of movements, like the whole principle of Idle No More was, it's not as though things just became a problem in relations between indigenous people and other Canadians. <laughs> it's been like that forever. Mm -hmm. So if indigenous people are less trusting now, well they should be, and that should be the, that's the basis of mobilization. Uh, Me too, the idea is, is that like, women have been sexually harassed forever, and if now they feel angry about it, well, that's, that's good, right? So I think that we, like, blindly trusting institutions isn't a way to make the world a more equitable place. And so it makes sense that people who are disenfranchised in, in terms of, for example, having lower socioeconomic status, things are very difficult if you don't have access to education and a good job and you're living in a very expensive city like Vancouver and that, that mm -hmm. you know, that lack of trust, the institutions should be interested in now responding to that to get people back in. And I'm making a big jump here, so Mr. Edelman and the data people, I might be wrong, but there is a level of privilege in that informed public. So the system kind of works for you if you've got uh, you know, a nice house and you've got some education, you've got a good job and your kids are all okay, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think there, that for sure that's it. And that is across the board, whether we are um, interviewing people in Canada, the US, the UK, or whether in Singapore, China, Italy, it doesn't matter. It shows the same, the gap between the informed public and the mass population. It's interesting because the uncivil discourse in Vancouver really does seem to split along socioeconomic lines between those who own homes and those who don't, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and those who own, own homes valued at more than $3 million. What about cyclists and car drivers? <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there. Um, these questions, as I mentioned, are all... Uh, the, the audience is, is uh, upvoting them, um, and uh, I will ask this for a friend. Um, <laughs> do you think there is too much political correctness right now? Sicily. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, well, no. I think that what people deem political correctness is actually just greater inclusion for everyone. Like, I think what people it's kind of like the freedom of speech thing. It's like definitely a misconception around what p political correctness is. Um, yeah, at, when you were talking about like the tabloids in the UK and there's, it's always like political correctness gone mad, but it's like, no, what we're actually doing is we're seeing real and genuine transformation towards a more inclusive and accessible society. So I would, this is my public service announcement, <laughs> on, uh, on Netflix there's a Vox series called Explained. It's 20 minutes, they take on complex topics and they're very compelling. They do one on political correctness and it addresses this very point that often the term political correctness is used by elites who had power who are now being challenged by other groups that were historically disenfranchised as a way of dismissing and diminishing them. So it's called Explained, done by Vox, and there's one on political correctness. This evening, when you get home, take a look. Yeah. I, I, 
May I just jump into that? Mm -hmm. I, I teach an introductory sociology class, and I had a student ask me that exact same question last class. We were talking about millennials and the stereotypes about millennials, and one of them is that they love you know, political correctness and they're snowflakes, right? That they're so, oh. you know, and that is another way of just criticizing someone else. Um, and they, they, my student asked me if I thought there was too much, and I think absolutely not. I think that the idea that we are erring too far on the side of being inclusive and respectful of other people is a, it's, it's a crazy debate even to have. And I also think that you know, the delight of the person who gets to say something non-politically correct, their enjoyment of having that freedom of expression is so minute in comparison to the harm done by saying this thing that is you know, damaging whole communities of people who are offended by it and creating a world for other people not in those communities that is unequal. So these are, you know, one tiny harm that you can't say exactly what you want to say compared to a mass amount of harm on the other side. So up with political correctness. You're a social justice warrior, aren't you? <laughs> Sociology? We, we love equality. That's I, heard that phrase come, I heard that phrase come out of one of my teenagers' mouths the other day. <laughs> who referred to someone at school as an SJW. <laughs> and I had no, I thought, like a single Jewish woman? What are you talking about? <laughs> so Stephen, would you consider yourself a social justice warrior as a CBC host? I'm on the side of all that is right and pure, Alfred. <laughs> no. Uh, you know Synonyms. what? Here's, you know, here's the thing, because, and I know, Catherine, you've, you've done a lot of work on, on Idle No More, and I'm asking this for myself, and everybody can weigh in. Are we, because I see it happening at CBC, and, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it, it seems that we are paying so much more attention to indigenous issues and aboriginal issues than ever before, because I know CBC is committed to doing that as, as part of the, the, the recommendations out of the Reconciliation Commission. Um, is it, do you see that changing or am I making it up? I think absolutely you see that change. Obviously, we still have a long way to go yeah. um, to, to deal with these issues. But, uh, you know, if you had said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that we would be living in a world where someone would do a land recognition at the beginning of this talk, and there are land rec at, at UBC, we do them before every single talk, before every, you know, the beginning of every class. We're going to be raising a flag, an in indigenous flags, uh, along with the UBC flags up on campus. There are you know, dialogue centers. There, like, the, if we think about how far we've come on these issues, in a, you know, there was very little progress for a very long time, and then quite rapid progress. And I think that this is one of the things that happens in the social media world, is that progress can be actually quite rapid when it gets going, and you just have to have it going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it becomes the new normal. So yes. I, and I actually noted the same thing, and I go to a lot of events, I work with a lot of different organizations, and the land recognition is now the new normal, mm -hmm. as it should be. So if, if we move the needle on that little one part, well, that's become the new normal, and so you keep moving the needle, moving the needle. So yeah, I think things are beginning to change, but I totally agree. I mean, I mean, I'm sure lots of indigenous people say, are you kidding, it's not nearly enough. But that, uh, that little piece alone, I think, gets people thinking about the new normal. I want to get back to the issue at hand because I can get so sidetracked because I love talking to you all. Um, this, uh, here's a question. Uh, is there anywhere in the world where trust is increasing? Oh, yes. I love this question because it's, it's, it's not what you would maybe think. Trust has increased the most in China, for example, 
And you might dig into that and think why. And there is some anecdotal um, evidence that suggests that people are just too afraid to say they don't trust. <laughs> and about three years ago, Richard Edelman was at the World Economic Forum announcing the results of the Edelman Trust Barometer. And there was the highest level of trust in the UAE. And the representative from the government said to Richard after, oh, we won. <laughs> and Richard looked at him and went, not really. So I think where we're seeing the levels of trust rise are in countries where people feel they don't have freedom and democracy. So that's a whole other piece. So, and, and people are getting a lot of, like in China, for example, a lot of the information that comes to the, to the Chinese population is through the Communist Party. So hmm. are you going to say you don't trust it? When you know that they're tracking you on your WeChat or your whatever it is? One of the I, interesting aspects yeah. of China is that, yes, the media is controlled by the Communist Party, but you, social media has been used more locally to hold local officials to account, especially around corrupt practices. Because it can be, it's framed not as in we're criticizing the Communist Party, but we're criticizing officials of the Communist Party who are not upholding the principles of the Communist Party by being corrupt. So at the local level, there have been examples where social media has galvanized that. I, I have no idea if it's related to trust, but it does show that the system of social media is holding certain, at a certain level accountable can work so long as the narrative is these were bad apples not upholding the principles of the glorious party. So it doesn't challenge the, the party's position in power, but it challenges the way it's operationalized. I just want to slide in a couple more questions here before we have to begin wrapping things up. I, um, I think it's a short answer to this one. Um, how much has uh, Trump affected inconsiderate behavior? <laughs> well, if you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, things went off the cliff two years ago. <laughs> they literally did. And what was interesting two years ago, we were in field during the U.S. presidential election, but also that's on the heels of when Trudeau was elected. So that U.S. results, trust plummeted in all the institutions. In Canada, there was this halo. Do you remember back when Trudeau was elected and the mm -hmm. optimism? The results in Canada, there was such a marked divide, which is something I hadn't mentioned earlier. But, you know, when we're talking about civil discourse or uncivil discourse, Canada really is in a different place than the United States. And we're usually, what, about 10 years behind, five years behind what's happening in the United States. And so we don't have a Donald Trump in Canada, but we do have a Ford and we do have uh, Maxim Bernier. And so where are we going to be in a few years from now? That wasn't mm. a short answer. <laughs> and it does get to your point about the new normal. Mm. Trump, in a way, sets the new normal for what's acceptable dis political discourse. So the GOP can support somebody for the highest position, judicial position, where there are so many questions about that individual, what they said, and credible evidence against them. Mm -hmm. So there is an impact there if you have somebody of the caliber of the, the mm -hmm. office of Trump and then the political administration behind it, they can set a new normal for what's acceptable discourse, shifting from what we would have considered uncivil into, no, this is political wrangling. But, but how have we accepted that new normal being lower and lower and lower every single day? Political expediency. He may be a bad apple, but he's our bad apple. And he's in the Oval Office. Anyone else want to jump in on the Trump and consider behavior? I think also, I, I wrote an article recently kind of comparing Trump to Brexit and 
thinking about how what happened in those two instances was it allowed people with who were kind of hiding their racism to now come to the forefront. They were basically given permission, you know, if the highest man in the land can be a racist, misogynist, sexual abuser, then we can go out and we can do anything. And the same with Brexit, kind of this idea that a lot of people were extremely misinformed and made their votes around pretty much all around anti-immigration. And so now that that was something that was validated by the media and sort of in the public eye and in, on a national scale, suddenly everybody else's interpersonal interactions sort of were validated by that larger scheme. And so we saw, like, in Britain, we saw a huge rise in the amount of racism on anti-immigration sentiment after Brexit, and, of course, in the U.S., seeing the same thing. And right. so now, whether online or in person, it's kind of like, yeah, if, if Trump can be up there saying whatever he wants, so, so can we say, you know, go back to your country or, or whatever. Catherine? Well, I just think that I, I don't know if we're just going to go down the path of Trump because I think you can have people follow you by making them angry or you can have people follow you by inspiring them. And I think if people were given the choice, they'd rather be inspired. So I think if you know, people can come up and, and, do, and do Trump, Trump 2.0, Trump in Canada, the next Trump there, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But I think that if someone comes up and inspires people, you know, the sort of more Obama philosophy, I, I think people prefer that. And I think that this discourse of going down, 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 he dragged other people down and they just weren't as bad. They weren't as good at sort of being bad like he was, right? He was sort of the best at that thing. But I think if someone went really high and was really inspiring, that I think people would rather that at the end of the day. And, hmm. you know, I, I don't think Ford necessarily... I don't know how long that's going to last. I think people, at the end of the day, they would prefer, like Trudeau at the, at the beginning, right? You can like him or dislike him, but that, you know, when he came up on the horse, sort of people enjoyed that, and people like to be inspired. Um, and finally, and we'll end this on a constructive note, and this is a question directed at Cicely, which is, how do you suggest people support movements even if they don't have lived experience that aligns with the movement? Well, I think... Going in the vein of social media, I definitely think signal boosting and, and sharing and educating others is the most valuable way. And I know not everybody is able to come out to a protest. And I think that's what really turns people off from activism is that fear of like, what is a protest like? You know, I'm not a Canadian citizen, so sometimes I don't go to something that might seem particularly dangerous. Um, and so there's so many ways online that you can really be involved with movements and really educating yourself is so valuable as well. And I think that's why over, over the years I've become less and less open to engaging with people online because so many other people have already said what I say. And so it's so much easier if you just do the work and you know, just Google it, read an article. Like There's so much valuable wisdom out there that I think we can educate ourselves with and people get a bit lazy. And that is, I guess, one of the problems with these kind of echo chambers is yeah, you only read your friend's post, but if you actually kind of broaden your horizons a little bit and actually, yeah, do some research and, and read what's out there, people are saying so many valuable things that can really enhance your learning of other people's lived experiences. I'm now going to ask you each uh, the, the very typical interview question um, and give you about a minute each uh, before we start to wrap things up. And I know this conversation, you know, could go on for a very long time. Um, and I'll begin with you, Alfred, and just come down the line, uh, which is, what would you like the audience to go home with tonight? What do you want people to be uh, 
talking about, to be thinking about as they leave here tonight? Well, I think part of it is to, to realize that things don't happen in isolation. So for an idea to catch fire on social media, there has to be the right kind of kindling there for it to spark, similar with the experience of forest fires in BC here. So when we see uncivil discourse taking off on social, it's partly because an atmosphere has been created to make that acceptable, and we've mentioned that here, in terms of shifting what's accepted as normal discourse. So for an idea to catch on, there has to be a ready audience who's willing to listen and willing to spread that message. What we can do is to say, no, that is not the new normal. We will not accept that. We will shift back or we will challenge those assumptions to say, no, that is not acceptable and resist that. So it's just a plea to be mindful and be realizing that when you see something emerging through social, very often than not, this is because it's tapping into broader social concerns, which may be completely mm. battered, like Black Lives Matter, I don't know more, or they may be used in a way to weaponize social media to get the media's attention to promote certain types of issues and a certain agenda. Catherine? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that we, when we are on social media, by allowing people to say things that are uncivil and harassing other people, and, and if we don't say anything, we are implicitly agreeing that that's all right. It's like you're at a dinner party and someone says a racist joke and you say nothing. Well, you've just implicitly agreed that that was fine. So we have to say, that joke is not fine, that online comment is not fine. And by saying that, we create a community where people who are making those comments are shunned out of the community, or they feel the social pressure not to say those things, right? So our ideal would be that they wouldn't think those things. And our second ideal is that they just don't say those things. And I think the other thing is, is that we have the power to select what we read. If we don't want to be involved mm. in uh, reading Facebook news that isn't real news, that is giving you all sorts of ideas that are made up by someone, then don't, we, we can choose not to read it. We can choose to get our news from other places. We can choose not to support those sites. Um, and we can use Facebook just to see pictures of our friends' kids, as it was intended. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and to do other things that we believe in, right? To follow movements we believe in, to follow news we believe in. But we have the choice to use it as we would like. We're active agents. All right, Cicely. Yeah, I think really going off of that allyship is so essential to this process. I mentioned earlier about you know getting my white friends to answer questions when things are getting hectic and. I say that because not because I'm lazy and I don't want to. It's because I live every day having to defend my own existence as a black queer person. And I'm saying, you know, if that's not your experience and you have the privilege to turn away, you can, you know, you can log out, you can not respond and you just go on with your life, never even being impacted by the things that Black Lives Matter is fighting for. So you could instead, you know, use some of that privilege to engage in a conversation with someone there you know, a white man is much more likely to listen to another white man than he is to me. So you can actually use that privilege and that agency to have those conversations where folks like myself don't continually have to be doing that labor, I think. Hmm. And Bridget? I'd say two things. On a personal level, every single person should take unconscious bias training. And that will open your eyes to all kinds of biases that we all have. And on a broader basis, 65% uh, of Canadians are afraid that fake news is being used as a weapon, which is huge. So that's most of the people. That's two-thirds thereabouts. My math's bad. And so besides education and, and finding allies and being part of good, I think, inclusive, diverse groups, also do your research. 
I don't know how many times I see my friends and family sharing stuff on social media. That is not true. Take a moment to research to find out where this information is coming from before you're active in sharing it. All right. Good point. Thank you all so much for this discussion this evening, and thank you so much for the fabulous questions from our audience. And again, thank you for your candor and your, and your openness, and I've really enjoyed this discussion so much, and let's do it again on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you.